Psalm 4. I thank God for the Psalms that David, Asaph, and Moses penned for us. And I exhort you and encourage you that when you are alone, to sit down and and read the Psalms. The New Testament, with its books of Romans and Hebrews and so forth, are for our doctrinal instruction. But they're not really designed for our personal fellowship with the Lord in the same way that the Psalms are. The Psalms are not designed to communicate a whole lot of doctrine to us, but rather of fellowship, praise, thanksgiving, and comfort from all the promises of God. And there's great value there. This particular psalm, if you have the superscript, which came from the same people that preserved the text in your Bible, it says it's to the chief musician on Neganoth, a psalm of David. The chief musician, David appointed many of them. The books of Chronicles and Kings describe them to us. And this particular leader of the worship of God in the temple or the dwelling place of the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant under the Old Testament in David's day, David addressed this psalm for worship. David provided the lyrics. The chief musician was to put it to music, and it was to be accompanied primarily by a hand-played instrument of strings, which is what Neganoth is. Now, when we run into a word that is not an English word, but a transliterated word, then we will go to the Hebrew. And so it is a stringed instrument played by the hand. And David assigned this particular psalm to the chief musician to use it in the worship of God. Before I enter upon its exposition and we read it together, I want to ask a question of this audience. Don't feel embarrassed, but if you know, if you have a, if you, have a positive answer to my question, please raise your hand so I can get a feel. How many of you know what Charles Spurgeon's Treasury of David is? Raise your hand. Okay. I may see if we can get a number of those. Charles Spurgeon did not write commentaries on the scriptures except for the book of Psalms. And he did an excellent job, an outstanding job. I cannot recommend very many commentaries without adding a number of caveats and warnings about them. He was a Baptist, and because there's not a whole lot of doctrine in the Psalms, he's dealing more with the identity of God and fellowship with him, and it's outstanding. He gives his exposition of each verse of each psalm, And then he gives the best that had been written by the 1880s by other men of similar persuasion about the scriptures and about fellowship with Christ. And then he has a quaint little section at the bottom of each verse, hints for the village preacher, so that Baptist preachers throughout England and in other places who may have had to help support themselves with secular callings could find a very short little outline from Charles Spurgeon on how to develop the verse for a sermon. All of that is quite worthless to this. If your mind is a little constipated, 
a little stagnant and not too creative when it comes to the Word of God, especially the Psalms, the poetry of the songs that David wrote, he is of great benefit. He is in the online Bible. Let us stand together and read Psalm 4 in unison. Together. Hear me when I call, O God of my righteousness. Thou hast enlarged me when I was in distress. Have mercy upon me and hear my prayer. O ye sons of men, how long will ye turn my glory into shame? How long will ye love vanity and seek after leasing? Selah. But know that the Lord hath set apart him that is godly for himself. The Lord will hear when I call unto him. Stand in awe and sin not. Commune with your own heart upon your bed and be still. Selah. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and put your trust in the Lord. There be many that say, Who will show us any good? Lord, lift thou up the light of thy countenance upon us. Thou hast put gladness in my heart more than in the time that their corn and their wine increased. I will both lay me down in peace and sleep. For thou, Lord, only makest me dwell in safety. Amen and amen. You may be seated. Father in heaven, I thank thee for these wonderful scriptures. And for a man who was of like passions as we are, who was troubled in his life more than we have been, yet found such consolation in your presence and in your answer to his prayers, and in your promises regarding him and his future family, we thank thee and bless thee for such scriptures. I have had great comfort from this psalm this week. David asks for the Lord to hear him. In the first verse, he opens the verse with the words, Hear me when I call. And he closes with the words, hear my prayer. There's three things in between that are worth our observance. The only expression in the Bible of, O God, of my righteousness. This is the only place these words occur. David understood that God was the source of his righteousness. The witness of his righteousness. The confirmation of his righteousness, the object of his righteousness. This is David's righteousness. God was the author of it, but more than that, God was the witness of it. David was a righteous man, and David appealed to his righteousness as truly righteous men will do. Because David in verse 1 is set in distinction from those wicked men in verse 2, 
who turned his glory into shame and who loved vanity and leasing, which is an old Saxon word for lying, more than truth and righteousness. David in Psalm 18 would say, and Psalm 18 is in your Bibles twice, and it's 50 verses long, describing God's deliverance of David from all his enemies. And that deliverance, according to David's explanation, in verses 15 through 25, was because of David's righteousness. And because David was an upright man. First of all, David had a righteous and upright heart. As it's expressed in the Bible that he was a man after God's own heart. And David's overall character was upright and righteous, though he was a sinner like all men. Of course, no one's denying that. But David appeals to the God who sees and vindicates righteous men. He's going to appeal to the word godly instead of righteous in verse 3 on the other side of the reference to the wicked men. But know that the Lord hath set apart him that is godly for himself. And who is David talking about? He's talking about himself. Because he goes on to say, the Lord will hear when I call unto him. It is false humility, which is actually pride that discounts your own righteousness. If you never want to affirm your righteousness before God, then you must not have any. But righteous men are righteous. That's why they're called righteous men. And that is why the elect in the Bible are called the righteous. It's not just because they're legally made righteous by Christ. It's because they are righteous by working out that salvation which God worked into them. They know that the source is all of God, but they do labor abundantly more than others. And David was one such man. O God of my righteousness. God would vindicate David, and God did vindicate David. We are not told in this psalm what the enemy is at hand. It could have been Saul. It could have been Absalom. It could have been Doeg the Edomite. It could have been Shimei. David had his enemies. It doesn't matter which one, we can fit them all into the psalm. Thou hast enlarged me when I was in distress. When we pray, it is valuable for us to remember God's answers to our prayers in the past. Had David ever been in distress? Well, he told Saul that he had been in distress by a lion and a bear, and the Lord had delivered him from both of them, so why should he fear nine-foot-nine-inch Goliath? Thou hast enlarged me when I was in distress. When the situation around me was very tight and very frightening, and I felt very small, thou enlarged me and gave me power over my enemies. He cut the head off that uncircumcised cyclops that came out of the camp of the Philistines and blasphemed Jehovah of Israel. And it's important. David gives us an example of how we ought to make mention to the Lord by thanking Him Of when he's delivered us from past distresses. Have you ever been in a distress in the past? Fearful of a bodily condition. Fearful of an employment situation. Lonely without a spouse. 
not knowing where you were going to worship God, wondering about the explanation of a passage. And we could go on and on. Has the Lord enlarged you in times past? Amen. He's enlarged you, you single young man. You're single no more. He's enlarged you. And we, I could go person by person in here and mention things that he's done for you. David knew that. And it's a good, it's good instruction for us. And then David said, have mercy upon me. Now, I love the scriptures if you'll read everything. He refers to the Lord Jehovah being the God of his righteousness because he was a righteous man and God blessed him because he was righteous. Just because, just as God blessed him because he was godly as the third verse says. But in the same verse, he says, have mercy. Because if God were to mark iniquities as this same righteous man wrote elsewhere, who can stand? No one can stand. So at the same time, while we remind God and we declare Him to be the righteous judge because He does measure us honestly and fairly and righteously, right. the same time we must say, have mercy, when we ask Him to hear us. Because He's not going to hear the others in the second verse. But David was no different than those in the second verse by nature. By practice, he was drastically different. Like light is different from darkness, which is exactly what we're said to be in First Thessalonians chapter 5. We are to live like light and in the light while the rest of the world wanders in darkness. Now the second verse are his enemies. O ye sons of men, how long will ye turn my glory into shame? How long will ye love vanity and seek after leasing? Selah. When we have a Selah in the Bible, it's telling us to pause, to stop, to meditate in the verses that we've just covered. And brother, when I read this second verse, it makes me think of the Son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ. How many times has the Lord, did the Lord of glory retire to his bed at the end of a day, having preached the truth purely, without any mixture of error, having performed the most stupendous collection of miracles on the nation of Israel, and yet they turned his glory as the Son of God into shame, as operating by the power of Beelzebub. And they sought after the vanity of their traditions and the leasing of their fabrications against him, the lies. And so the question is asked, ye sons of men, how long? David had been chosen by God. Out of eight sons, David was the youngest eighth son. So obscure in his own family that his father and brothers overlooked him when they lined up the family before Samuel to find the next king of Israel. But he was the one anointed. He was the one that had promises given to him. That his son would sit forever on God's throne. And he does at this very hour. And yet they had turned that glory into shame by mocking him. Is this the great king of Israel that's living among the Philistines? Where is the God that said that he was a man after God's own heart? It doesn't look like it, does it? 
How long, O ye sons of men, to David and to the son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ, will you turn my glory into shame? How long will men believe lies rather than the truth? How long will they seek after leasing and vanity? How long will they worship stumps of wood and pieces of stone? How long will they believe that we came from monkeys by a big bang instead of humbling themselves before the great God who created them? How long? It is so foolish. It is so wicked. And so David distinguishes himself from his enemies by their drastically different Character and conduct. Let us make sure that our character lines up with David. Verse 3. You may turn my glory into shame, and you may say vain things, and you may promote lies about me. But know something. Know something for certain, that the Lord Jehovah hath set apart him that is godly for himself. I am the Lord's. I conduct my life by God's law. I have maintained my uprightness. Go read about it in Psalm 18. David's the one that can say, Judge me, O Lord. Examine me. Try me. Because David's overall character was one of righteousness and one of godliness. But know this, you sons of men who want to turn my glory into shame. Know this, that the Lord, Jehovah, has taken me from all of Israel. He chose Judah. From all of Judah, the largest of the tribes, he chose the house of my father Jesse. Of my father's many sons, he chose me because he liked me. That's what it says in the Bible exactly. But know that the Lord hath set apart him that is godly for himself. I am the Lord's. I am the Lord's delight. I am the Lord's favorite. I have the Lord with me. His countenance is smiling upon me. He blesses the things that I do. He directs my stones to the forehead of Goliath. He directs my hands to the throat of a lion and a bear. He takes care of me every step of my way. The Lord will hear when I call unto him. The Lord's not going to hear when you call, but the Lord will hear when I call. Now this is what you should do. You sons of men who have wasted your lives in vain thoughts and lies, you men, when you turn out the lights, and the computer is turned off and the cell phone is turned off, and you crawl into your beds, this is what you should do. Stand in awe and sin not. Instead of your leasing or your lies, instead of your vanity, humble yourself before the God that sets apart the righteous and the godly for himself. Humble yourselves before the God that is my God. Humble yourselves before the God that has me as his favorite and that is going to bless me and protect me in all of my endeavors. You are fighting against God himself. Stand in awe and sin not. Commune with your own heart upon your bed and be still. Selah. Your bed, I've told you this many times before, I repeat. Your bed is one of the best places for you to talk to yourself. And talking to yourself is of great importance for you to be great in the sight of the Lord. It is where, without distraction, 
And without the constant input of the wicked world around you, you can be alone with God and God will come to you. Elihu said in Job 33 that God oftentimes deals with righteous men like himself by coming to them in the night and teaching them things. It is the best place to go, to bed. When everything else is shut out, then in the darkness and in the quietness, you may examine yourself, you may repent, and you may speak to the Lord without distraction or diversion, and He can speak to you. And so David's exhortation is to his enemies. Stand in awe and sin not. The Lord is with me. He has set me apart for himself. He'll hear when I call upon him. Why are you opposing me? Commune with your own heart upon your bed and be still. Stop all your vain and wild imaginations. Stop all your covetousness. Stop all your worries. Stop all your listening to others. Stop. Be still. Commune with your own heart. Commune with it. Do you love the Lord Jehovah like you should? Do you pursue righteousness like you should? Have you been neglectful in your spiritual exercises? Do you have unconfessed sin that is between you and God? Selah. Again, stop and consider what has just been said. What should they do when they get up in the morning? The simplest explanation of our religion. (laughs) I love the fifth verse, and I'll tell you. The other seven verses around it have more metaphors and have lots to be pulled out of them, but it's the fifth that this particular year of my life I loved the most of the eight. Its simplicity is beautiful. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness. Forget your bullocks, forget lambs, forget ceremonial worship at the tabernacle or the house that David had built for the ark. Forget all that. Offer God the sacrifices of righteousness. This is a pitiful illustration because I'm not good at this thing and I don't aim to be good at it. Every time I get in a vehicle, and my choice of words is to make my point, every time I get in a vehicle and have to reach for that stupid seatbelt, it is a sacrifice of righteousness to the Lord. I only do it for one reason. I don't do it for the intelligence of our government. I don't do it because I'm afraid of my windshield if at 70 miles an hour I have a sudden stop against a bridge abruptment. I do it because 1 Peter 2 tells me, submit yourself to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. It is a sacrifice of righteousness. And many times as I'm clicking that constraining device into place, I tell the Lord, only for you. Because I wouldn't do it for anyone else. It is my right as a driver of an automobile. If I want to put my face through my windshield 
Now those are, that's all my natural reasoning. My spiritual reasoning is, it's a sacrifice of righteousness. Right. See, me wearing a seatbelt doesn't protect you. It just protects me. And if I don't want to protect me in that particular case, but anyway, enough of that. Now, what is there in your life where you could make an offering of righteousness? Where you could offer a sacrifice of righteousness? How are you getting along with your spouse? Well, it's a little tense between us right now because I'm waiting for my spouse to come to me and make peace. Well, why don't you offer the sacrifice of righteousness by going and making peace? Every aspect of your life, every relationship, has opportunities for you to offer the sacrifice of righteousness. Do you want to do that? Lord, I'm doing this for you. And put your trust in the Lord. That's our religion. That is our religion. We do not want to offer the sacrifices of ceremonial, ritualistic religion. We want to offer the sacrifices of righteousness. We want to do what is right corporately, publicly, and privately in our lives. That seatbelt is a pleasure. Now, it didn't sound like it because I was telling you as a fool how I resent it in my flesh. But it's a pleasure to offer that sacrifice. And all of us have them every hour of every day to offer the sacrifice of righteousness. Instead of coming into here and thinking we've done something special for the Lord, you have done nothing for the Lord by coming through that door and sitting on this foam rubber. Nothing. He does not care one whit. There's going to be millions in front of you as they stand before the Lord Jesus Christ that he's going to cast into hell who have preached in his name and who have performed miracles in his name, which are two great works of supposed righteousness that you've never done. And they will be sent to hell. He doesn't care that you're here. He wants the sacrifices of righteousness. And then we put our trust in the Lord. They were putting their trust in their arms, their preparation, their confidence in men and princes and Davids was in the Lord. What a simple verse. This is how we ought to live. Verse 5, offer the sacrifices of righteousness. Every day you can burn a bullock to the Lord by doing something that you don't want to do, that in the past you might not have done, but you're going to do it because the Lord said this is righteous. It could be to your employer, it could be to a colleague, it could be to a child, it could be to a parent. It could be to the Lord directly. It could be in your thoughts. I'm not going to think that, Lord. It's a sacrifice of righteousness to you. And then you put your trust in the Lord. What a wonderful verse. Verse 6, there be many that say, and some of these were among David's own friends, there's belly worshippers among our enemies, there's belly worshippers among our friends, There are belly worshipers in this church. It's easy to tell. Walk up to them and have a conversation. If they mention their health or their job, they're a belly worshiper. If they mention the Lord Jesus Christ and the hope of glory, they're a Christian. They love God. If they want to talk about God, no one's job is important. The Lord is important. No sports activity, no political event, and your health are not important. 
If your health would just deteriorate faster, you could be to heaven sooner. What's the problem? Of course we don't like our aches and pains. Most of you don't even disclose them to the church. Where, where is your attention? Where is your affection? Where is your concentration? There's belly worshipers in this sixth verse, and they were among David's friends. Do you know at times they wanted to stone David? And here, here's the way they talk. There'll be many that say, and it's a shame that there's many. And the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3 verses 18 and 19 would say that there are many that are the enemies of the cross of Christ because they mind earthly things. There'll be many that say, who will show us any good? Nothing good's happening to us. Nothing good's happening for us. Where's the Lord? Nothing good's happening. My whole life's miserable. Lord, lift thou up the light of thy countenance upon us. Their eyes are horizontal. How much am I making? Where do I live? What am I driving? Where do I work? Who are my friends? What have my children accomplished in school? How many friends do I have? On and on, carnal things. Who's going to show us any good? They're horizontally looking for good for their lusts. They want things. David says, Lord, lift thou up the light of thy countenance upon us. Lord, smile upon us. He looks heavenward. And all he wants is the Lord's smile. And now he's going to tell us exactly what made him different than those others that are in verse 2 and that are in verse 6. Both David's enemies and some of David's friends, the combined total being many, were looking for things of this world. Lord, lift thou up the light of thy countenance upon us. And here's what he means, and here's what he rejoiced in. Thou hast put gladness in my heart. He doesn't say our hearts, because he didn't know very many like him. Right. How many did Paul know like him? Very, very few. How many did David know like him? Very few. Thou hast put gladness in my heart more than in the time that their corn and their wine increased. Do you know what they want? They want their corn and wine increasing so they can have some more bucks. Do you know what David wanted? And do you know what David was satisfied with? The gladness in his heart by having fellowship with the Lord. What a difference. What a distinguishing difference. Forget the corn and the wine. You're going to leave it all behind in just a few years. Death is ripping you down to the grave right now. Put your delight in the Lord Himself and the gladness that He's able to put in your heart by the Holy Spirit. Thou hast put gladness in my heart more than in the time where they're so, so called happy. In the time of harvest, when they're abounding in produce and expected revenues, he had the Lord. There be many around us. There be some among us. All they care about is this world. It's all they ever think about. They're miserable, and they're going to die miserable. Let us die with the gladness in our heart that we should have every day of our lives, on the inside, 
that should show forth on the outside. Because the Lord is with us, and He has smiled upon us, and He has set us apart for Himself. He will hear when we call unto Him. What blessings! He has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Therefore, let your conversation or lifestyle be without covetousness, and be content with such things as ye have, because you have the Lord with you. So that we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper, I will not fear. And you men, when you crawl into bed, you, my enemies, you ought to be standing in awe and ending your sinning, because the Lord is with me, and he's not with you. Get out of your bed, offer the sacrifices of righteousness, and put your trust in the Lord. If you want to whine about any good, I'll tell you about goodness that can't be measured by the world. It's goodness with God's presence in my heart. The gladness that he puts there by his fellowship with me. And then he concludes by saying, and though he had enemies, and though he had to live among the Philistines, just try to imagine that from time to time, David had to live among the Philistines. David had to live in caves and woods, though he was the anointed king of Israel. He said, because the Lord was with him, I will both lay me down. There's both. There's two things here. I will both lay me down in peace. When I go to bed, I'm not afraid of going there. I'm not afraid of what could happen during the night. I will both lay me down in peace and sleep. The book of Ecclesiastes tells us that the riches of the wealthy don't let them sleep. The Bible tells us that the covetousness of the poor won't let him sleep. His eyes are in the end of the earth looking for more and more. But David said, I will both lay me down in peace and sleep. For thou, Lord, only makest me dwell in safety. There is no other thing I can do to help myself sleep at night that's of any importance except you, Lord. This is David's confidence in the Lord. Romans 8 is going to teach us very similar things. That God has promised to never leave us nor forsake us because he is going to see us all the way through to our glorification. What shall we then say to these things if God be for us? Who can be against us? No one. Hebrews 13 says the same thing. Psalm 4 says the same thing. And this is where we ought to put our trust. May the Lord bless this psalm to your lives. And may the Lord bless you to use the book of Psalms. To sit down alone and to read through these words and to remember David's life experiences. And to commiserate and find the empathy from David through the Holy Spirit coming to you from a psalm. To comfort you and to stir you up and to direct you as to what you ought to be doing in your life. And may you rise a better person from feeding on God's word. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God shall man live. May the Lord bless the reading of his word.